Well, pray with me one more time as we begin our sermon today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you and your throne. Well, Lord, thank you for giving us the gift of praise, the gift of worship, that we may be reminded again that all storms will soon be passed when we see Christ. What a glorious encouragement and what a glorious reminder it is to know that our lives, though momentary, in light of eternity, though we are living a life that is like a vapor, Lord, we have an enduring hope. And so, God, we pray that you would simply encourage our faith today, that you would buttress that faith, that hope, strengthen what is weak in our lives And Father, would you be the lifter of our heads today? And Father, remind us and set ever before us our heavenly hope, knowing that we have this hope reserved for us in heaven. Help us, Lord, as we look at the examples given to us in your holy word, to be encouraged as a true means of grace that we would draw strength from your revelation to us today. We ask your help. We ask that your spirit would be pleased to move among us, to give us insight and clarity into Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are moving ever so slowly through the book of Hebrews, and uh, I love it that way because I'm finally in one of the chapters of the Bible I have longed to preach, and that is Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, and therefore I am not in any rush whatsoever to get through this chapter, but we come upon two distinct examples in the history of Israel that serve to illustrate a different aspect of our faith. I mean, I really think that is what Joseph and Rahab serve to do for us, is they sort of encourage us in our faith in different ways. The examples are obvious and they're explicit, but we need only to go to them in order to find encouragement. As a matter of fact, that is what Hebrews 11 reminds us uh, just really uh, on the surface that our faith, our journey, our Christian life is in need of encouragement. We need to be encouraged on the way, on the road as sojourners, pilgrims, who are passing through. What does Hebrews 11 tell us but that we need to be encouraged uh, as we face the different challenges and trials and tribulations? No doubt you will remember as we came out of chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews that this church, or churches possibly, that the author is writing to are facing some pretty harrowing experiences. People have been persecuted. People have been put in jail. People have had their possessions confiscated. They have seen persecution up close. And these are Christians, therefore, who desperately need examples to be set in front of them so that they would be strengthened and encouraged in their faith. Matter of fact, if you look over to Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13 tells us explicitly that this is for our encouragement. And we need to, we need to, um, We need to develop a habit of doing this in our own lives. That's why I believe so strongly in biography. uh, To look at the lives of people, not just in biblical history, but in church history, 
so that we might draw encouragement and strength for their examples. Look at uh, Hebrews 13.7. It says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Now, the principle of imitation is a very powerful principle in the Bible. Matter of fact, I've done a study just in the New Testament of literally dozens and dozens and dozens of scriptures uh, that are uh, speaking about that very thing, the principle of imitation, all the way from imitating Christ as, a, as the, the, the ultimate uh, a principle, the ultimate example, rather, of all examples, that, that we imitate Him. He is our Master. We are the servant. We walk in His steps, as Peter says. But we follow other examples. We follow the examples of the apostles. And we know what Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. As Paul told the Philippians, what you have seen and heard and, and, and here to be in me, imitate my example and the God of peace will be with you. That's a powerful summons to imitate genuine and authentic faith. That's what we have here set before us in this text. We have legitimate examples of authentic faith. That is not to say that Everything in the life of everyone mentioned in Hebrews 11 is exemplary from start to finish. Obviously not. I mean, Samson's life is hardly a a life worth imitating from start to finish. But even then, we will see authentic faith at work in his life. Same thing we can say with David. We don't imitate everything David did, but as Hebrews tells us to do, we, we look at the conduct and we see where the, the conduct was godly and worthy of imitation. And above everything, we seek to imitate the authenticity of faith. Hopefully we continue to do that as we go through Hebrews 11. Now, if I were to title this sermon anything, I would entitle it Foolish Faith with foolish in quotations. Because we are given two examples here that fly in the face of all conventional wisdom, both on a redemptive historical scale and both on a salvific scale. When we look at how God chose to work and who God chose to use, we are reminded that God's ways are not our ways. That God does work in mysterious ways and that his thoughts are much higher than our thoughts. I mean, think of Jericho. Who would have ever counseled a nation in the, on the eve of battle to engage in a worship service? This episode of Jericho is actually very important. Let's begin there. How God chooses to work. Let's read again. Verse 30 says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. That's a very brief sort of a jolt of faith being exemplified. But what is Jericho? What does that symbolize in the nation of Israel? Jericho is a very significant redemptive historical event in the life of God's people. 
Why? Because it is the next significant event in the life of the nation having crossed the Red Sea. Well, we know if you just back up to verse 29, uh, the author just got done telling us about the victory at the Red Sea over God's enemies. And then Jericho, really above everything, symbolizes the people of God coming into greater and greater uh, a for- formation, if you would, into sort of a formal theocratic entity beginning to take possession of their promised inheritance. Jericho stands in the way. God's going to deal with that. That's what we learn from here. And so what we see is God choosing to use a people for a purpose that in a sense they are ill-equipped to do. I mean, think about it. Children of Israel at this point, they don't have an elaborate army. They don't have elaborate weapons. They just came out of the wilderness wandering. And though they've engaged in several battles, which again only proves that God miraculously delivered their enemies into their hands, they're ill-equipped. God chooses a people that are ill-equipped. He chooses a people that are facing impossible odds And he chooses a people above everything else that are trusting in his word, that are trusting in his word. Not only were they ill-equipped, but they were, I think they were put in that position specifically by God for a purpose. And that is that the way that God is going to do this is the way that is going to bring him the most amount of glory. The promised land is not going to be taken by swords and spears and battling rams. It's going to be taken not on the the stratagem of war. It's going to be taken by a worshipful procession of priests. Think about that. Isn't that incredible? I mean, think theologically with me for a minute. What did God tell the children of Israel as they were leaving Egypt? What their identity was to be? Exodus 19.6 You shall be... A kingdom of priests. Not a kingdom of incredibly powerful kings. Not a kingdom, a a dynasty of warriors. That's not what God said. He said, you will be a kingdom of priests. What that says is that in the divine purpose of God, at the very apex of the assembly of God's people, is religion. What God wants above everything else is a people for His praise. He wants a people to dwell with Him in a sanctum of holiness. That's what God wants. And that's why God, He chooses people that, again, against all conventional wisdom, often doesn't make sense that He would choose, that He would use, that He would pick. What did God say in Deuteronomy chapter 7? I chose you not because you were the greatest nation in number, etc., 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 but I chose you because I set my love on you. What can I say? It was you were chosen by divine pleasure, nothing else. God chose a people, a particular people, because we serve a particular God and He wants to save a people in a particular way, and for a particular purpose. And when they obeyed these, in the face of these impossible odds, and in a way that flew against all conventional wisdom, what happened? A procession of faithful 
priests in a nation proclaiming his name, bearing his name, and proclaiming his praise, the walls fell down. Joshua chapter 6 verse 20. So the people shouted, and the priests, they blew their trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Incredible. Incredible. Now, you tell this story to people today and they say, oh, come on. They blew a trumpet, the wall fell over, give me a break. Well, not to piggyback on what Dr. Lyle's been teaching, but it depends what lenses you're wearing, right? It depends if you're looking through a biblical lens to understand that God does whatever He wills. I mean, we believe in a worldview that tells us donkeys speak. Uh, are you ever going to get anyone to accept this? <laughs> not along humanistic means, you will not. This is the way that God decides to move among his people so that he alone will be credited for his people obtaining their eternal inheritance, which the obtaining of Canaan is a typological, it is a picture, it is a prophetic symbol future telling of what is going to take place with the people of God eschatologically in the end. Isn't that what the book of Hebrews is all about anyway? The book of Hebrews is about that very thing. Remember, I will remind you once again. Look at, uh, for example, a couple texts. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant... This is how God is going to deal with all those transgressions. Those who have been called, even as Israel was called, may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. My dear friends, the language of inheritance uh, doesn't come uh, from nowhere. I mean, in, in Hebrews, the language of inheritance is rooted in Old Testament theology. Again, look at Hebrews 10, uh, beginning in verse... Uh, in verse 35. I guess we can go to verse 34. <laughs> you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. What's the point? You have need of endurance. You have need of endurance. What is the key to Jericho? The key is that the people of God trusted in the word of God, not on their own reason. They didn't want to do it their own way. They trusted that God's word was true. Everybody trusted in it at this point. Uh, Think about it. If you go back, uh, for example, to the book of Joshua, where this is all found, uh, Joshua chapter 1 all the way to chapter 6, but In Joshua chapter 1, Israel as a whole trusted in the promises of God and they trusted that God had given in the land. And also, you see the faith of the priests and the fighting men who circled the city. I mean, think think about that. You're a fighting man. And there you are in front of Jericho and God tells you to sing and to go in a circle seven times, (laughs) right? And to shout, 
Is that how you win a war? <laughs> Think about it. You're a warrior. You're there to, you know, do what a warrior does. You don't want to walk around in a procession and sing and shout. <laughs> you want to take up a sword. You want to take matters in your own hands. But God says, no, that's not the way he chooses to work. This was obedience on display. As a matter of fact, you see Joshua's obedience too. In in Joshua chapter 5, you see the obedience of Joshua all throughout, really, chapter after chapter, as God tells him, Joshua, do not be afraid, be courageous, right? Only do not be afraid. I am with you. God is reminding Joshua of his faithfulness to him constantly, and that's what God does for us. Much like our faith today, where the world looks at us as utterly foolish for what we believe. They look at all the things that we believe in, and they think, We are foolish people for what we believe. Especially today, believing it's the only way to believe. Um, Think about this. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If our hope is in Christ only in this world and not in the resurrection, we are of all men to be pitied. If our hope is not sure, not true, then our faith is pitiful. That's what he's saying. God's people will always be subject to ridicule in this age. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Here, turn there with me. Do me a favor here as we think about the fact that how is God accomplishing his purposes today? Well, much like how is God going to bring the Hebrews to their inheritance? Well, much like with Jericho. It will not come in the way that you suspect. And what it will take, it will take for you to trust in God's word even in the face of impossible odds, even in the face of impossible obstacles, we have to believe. Now add to that, brothers and sisters, Jesus' teaching of a suffering church. It's also that He would get the glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Remember what the Apostle Paul says is that the minute that believers were tempted to fly into some sort of triumphalism, some sort of over-realized eschatology, the Apostle Paul sort of brought him back down to earth saying, no, that's not the nature of the kingdom. You want to see the kingdom, and then he uses a bit of sarcasm, a bit of irony here. Listen to what he says, verse 8. You are already filled. See, these were slogans that they were claiming. They are already filled. They're already rich. You've already become kings without us. Indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. You see, they thought that they were already, in a sense, arriving at the eschaton. And he's saying, no, for I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Now, can you imagine the people of Israel circling? How about the sixth time around? Fools, for Christ's sake. But they were obedient. That's the point. You are prudent in Christ. We are weak. You are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. We toil, working with our hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. When we have become as the, we have become as the scum of the world. 
the dregs of all things, even until now. Be careful that you do not ever believe that Christianity in this age is ever going to be this highly regarded, highly dignified. Well, I think if you preach the true gospel, it will always be unpopular. I think if you come with the truth of God, I don't think you're going to get very far on Fox News. You might get a soundbite. But if you really dig into Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and outside of Him there is no life for the whatever eight billion people on the planet. Is it eight or seven? I don't know. I do know this. Recent study concluded 2016 the most persecuted year in history for Christianity around the world, especially in Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist countries. No, God has called His people to suffer. God has not called His people to achieve His goals through their own conventions and their own wisdom. Now, what about the way that, because the same book that speaks of this, the same church anyway, Paul tells them that not only is power perfected in weakness, but he also says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that God's grace is all-sufficient. Don't we see that here? God's all-sufficient grace displayed in our next example, which is Rahab, which moves us to the next point. Not only how does God choose to work, but who God chooses to use. Look at verse... uh, Back in Hebrews, look at verse 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Remarkable. Now turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. A little bit of Old Testament here. Praise the Lord. I wish we could stay in the Old Testament all the time. Be careful because once we're done with Hebrews, who knows what I'm liable to do. Maybe a 15-year study through Ezekiel. No, just joking. (laughs) Of course Landon says amen. (laughs) Uh, Joshua chapter 2, because here we kind of see the faith of Rahab. And I think that Rahab is often not really regarded enough for her faith. And I want to say that in this text, and in other places of Joshua, you kind of see evidence and substance to her faith where Hebrew says, by faith Rahab did X, Y, and Z. Well, what faith? Well, I'll remind you that the apostle James says in James chapter 2 that Rahab was justified by her works because, again, she hid the spies. And therefore, what we're seeing in the life of Rahab here in Joshua is the evidence of faith. We are seeing faith at work. Of course, the reform slogan is faith alone. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone, and leave everything else alone. But faith alone, if it truly is true faith, is never alone, right? It is always accompanied by some redemptive 
evidence in your life. Some sign of the grace of God at work in your life. Let's just read it. Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. It says, Now before they lay down, she came up to them, talking about the spies, <clears throat> on the roof. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard of how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to, and, uh, what you did to the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, this is prior to Jericho, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted. No courage remained in any man and any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and on the earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also deal kindly with me in my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for your life. If you do, if, if you do not tell this business of ours and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly with, uh, kindly and faithfully with you. Now, of course, um, we should notice that by faith she was saved. No, maybe not salvifically, of course she was, but in this instance, physically, uh, she was spared. What a perfect picture of salvation. Trusting in the mercy, in the grace of God. Trusting that God is faithful, that God is a merciful God. She was spared. As a matter of fact, her faith was symbolized only by this symbol. Because she says, give me a pledge of truth. And so not only did they pledge truth, but they also allowed her to put a symbol, a token that bond them together, and that is her scarlet thread. Now, I understand that there is a lot of debate on the nature of the scarlet thread of Rahab. There are the allegorical uh, opinions that because the thread was scarlet, and you know scarlet is red, you know, and because the, the thread was red, then that is a symbol of the blood of Christ. Of course, that's what that means. Well, I don't take the allegorical, allegorical approach. However, I do take a modified view on the scarlet thread. Don't you all run out of the church now. Because I think what you're seeing with the scarlet thread is actually going back before it goes forward. Because just as Rahab is told to mark her house in order that she would be spared from death, the children of Israel, where did they get this wild idea to do that? Well, the Passover had just taken place in their history, and they understood that by marking their homes, God would spare them. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 12, we are told that no one was to go outside of the house so that the avenger would not kill you. And in the same way, Rahab is told by the men, do not allow anyone to leave your house or their sin will be on their own head or their blood will be on their own head. In other words, we're not responsible if they disobey the pledge that we gave you and go out of the house, out of the place of covering. Okay, well maybe that 
is a link to the Passover, which would then in turn connect us to what the Passover is really all about. First Corinthians chapter five, verse six and seven, which is Christ is our Passover. The Passover is all about Christ. Where does a divine protectorate come from? From the wrath of God. It comes from Christ and his atoning work. She was separated by this, by this faith that she had. What's remarkable about, if you go to Joshua chapter 6, turn there with me, Joshua chapter 6, is that by the time this is all over, um, Rahab is virtually memorialized in Israel. I mean, you have this statement here, Joshua chapter 6, beginning in verse 24 They burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver, the gold, the articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. You know, I added up all of the passages on Rahab There's quite a lengthy stretch of Scripture devoted to her. It's remarkable. That is not inconsequential. Everything in Scripture matters. There's no detail. There's no throwaway verse in the Bible. She she holds a prominent place. And therefore, she actually serves as the perfect example in the book of Hebrews, in the context of Hebrews, of how it is that by trusting in the Word of God, trusting that God has the power to save by faith, She was spared. And the evidence of her faith is threefold. Number one, she believed in the true God. What does she say? She says in Joshua 2, 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land. In verse 11, the Lord your God, He is the God of heaven above and on earth beneath. She also believed in the power of God. She knew that God had the power to stop up the waters at the Red Sea and to overthrow the enemies of God's people. And she also believed in the promise of God. She knew that God was faithful. She trusted that by tying that thread on her window, marking her home, God in His faithfulness would pass over her. She is a perfect a perfect example of that because... Here's the deal. Joshua chapter 2. The pledge is future. I would say it is eschatological. She is trusting that God would deliver her safely and bring her and keep her and include her in the inheritance of God's people. She has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. Here is a person that doesn't, doesn't deserve to have that. She is a woman, a harlot, a Gentile. She lives with the enemy of God's people. She doesn't deserve to be spared. Her household should have been demolished. But by the grace of God, and I believe her trusting in the promises, and even this, trusting in the goodness of God. Can you imagine The city is being raised all around you. And the only thing that's giving you any hope whatsoever is by faith trusting in the promise of God and in the oath 
that God's people had taken to protect you. I want to say this last of all. I want to remind us of this, and I thought, you know, this is a good evangelical way to end this. But I want to remind us of this simple fact. Rahab was a harlot. What that means is that God chooses to save the vile, the unclean. Because she was a Gentile, she should have no place with the people of God. She's a Gentile dog, a goyim. She's immoral. She's sinful. She's wicked. In terms of society, she is a outcast. She belongs and she's part of the dregs of the world. She's trash. Doesn't this just marvelously display for us the grace of God? God didn't choose to save the king of Jericho. The one with the power, the pomp, the treasure, the money, the influence. No! He decides to spare a harlot. That is the grace of God marvelously on display for us. Now, here's our connection with Rahab. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just to bring us and bring, bring us back down to biblical earth. This is the verse that came to me as I was studying for this passage. It's just booming at me, booming at me, booming at me. Never forget who you are, who you were. Never forget that God saves the foolish things of this world. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. Consider your calling, brethren that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Now, does God save such people? Yeah, He does. He does save the PhDs. He does save the millionaires. He does save the people of influence. But not mostly. Mostly, God saves the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That's a very powerful phrase. God saves the foolish things of the world, AI harlots like Rahab, in order to shame the wise, to show them, as he has already said in the letter, right, in verse 19 and 20, that God has rendered the wisdom of this world foolish. To show them that with their wisdom, all they have is shame. Because they considered the cross, the apex of God's wisdom, a foolish thing. And so, this is the ultimate irony. He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. I carry in my Bible a picture of the weak things of the world. It's a young lady from Indonesia, and she's holding a Bible that the Muslims, after they came into her village, burned down her church, killed many people in her village, burned her Bible, and she's holding her Bible, this burnt, crusted Bible, What's re- what, and what remains from it. And this young, probably 14-year-old girl looking at her Bible as if to say, this is the most precious thing that survived everything. And here it is. And it's just a picture that reminds me, 
God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Be not deceived, my dear friends. All strength that you see today on display on our planet, all athletic strength, all entertainment strength, all wealthy strength, all political strength, on the day of judgment will come to absolute ruin. Absolute shame. Can you imagine the scene on the day of judgment as all the dignitaries and diplomats and all the politicians and all of the billionaires and trillionaires and how much money do people have nowadays? And all of the people of influence come before the throne of God. Can you imagine the the utter shame, the shock? The Bible says that they will be put to an ever Lasting shame. I don't think we really take that into account as we ought to. He's chosen the base things of the world. That is, the things that the world looks upon as base. What could be more base than a harlot that lives on a wall in a city? It says that God chose the despised, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. Jacob, or excuse me, Jericho and Rahab remind us of that very thing. Why did God choose to work the way he did in Jericho? So no one will boast. Why did God choose to use a harlot in his redemptive purposes for his people? So no one will boast. So that God would get the glory. And for God's people, that is our ultimate ambition. That God would be glorified and in that, we are satisfied. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Lord, remind us that faith is not a magical potion. It's not a religious incantation, but without the object of faith, namely you, your presence, your power, your promises, your word, our faith is empty, void. But oh, thanks be to God that Jesus Christ gives us the victory through faith. And so Lord, help us to do that which will be a means of grace in our lives to strengthen our faith. The simple things, fellowship, going to church, reading our Bibles, evangelism, prayer. The simple things, Lord, that will strengthen us so that we will have a like faith, a like-mannered faith. Father, I pray that you would make us people of great faith, that we will trust you for great things in our lives because you are God who is able. We humbly gratefully submit ourselves to your care. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.